And so what I attempted to achieve was actually achieved for a little while. I definitely made her an independent and then tried to keep the topics that we were dealing with something that both sides could relate to. That's the West Point educated director and screenwriter Rod Lurie. He was among the very first creators in Hollywood to feature a woman president in a TV series and the first to create an independent president. In both cases, that was Gina Davis in the 2005 series Commander-in-Chief. I, Mackenzie S. Allen, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. If I had to do it again, I would sell that independence even more. I would sell it even more. How does Hollywood choose its presidents? A series with multiple episodes, starting today with Rod Lurie and Commander-in-Chief. This is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. I'm Robert Pease. What's the up and downside to building a show around an independent POTUS? I'm Emily Corsetti. In addition to Commander-in-Chief, Rod's also the director of many widely praised films on leadership in government and the military, such as Deterrence, The Contender, and most recently, The Outpost, one of the top independently produced films of 2020. Every time they take a pot shot at us, they're figuring us out. When the big one comes, all of us dialed in. He's also refreshingly outspoken. They're all full of shit. Frequently surprising. I went to West Point in order to become a filmmaker. And not one to hide embarrassing details. I didn't know that movies were made. You know, they just sort of showed up in the theaters. Rod has since figured all that out. We'll speak with him about Commander-in-Chief and several other norm-busting productions as well. First, let's get to know Rod Lurie a bit better. Born in Israel but raised in the U.S. from a young age, he was a Hollywood reporter and critic before becoming a screenwriter, showrunner, and director. But through all this and more, it's always been about his love for movies. So just starting on a little bit of a personal level, you've lived and worked in these very different cultural environments, you know, having been born in Israel, gone to West Point, served in the right. military. We don't think of LA as a very militarized culture. <laughs> so tell us, what was it like crossing and recrossing those types of boundaries? Well, you know, I, I think, first of all, it's a mistake to think uh, that you can apply this cliche that the military is is a conservative organization. It really isn't, uh, at least not from the standpoint that I've always seen it in. You know, the, the military itself, if you think about it, is complete socialism. You got socialized housing. You got so the, the kids of the generals go to school, the kids of the privates. You have health care taken care of. You got, uh, you know, lifelong pension uh, that is taken care of. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's very much, you're, you're living very much off the tip of the government when you're in, in the military and you probably are doing it for life. So also remember that the military is something like 40% black and Hispanic, which are traditionally liberal or at, at least Democrat uh, basis. So I don't think that the crossover was uh, was that dramatic. I'll tell you this, you know, I went to West Point in order to become a filmmaker. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but I did. I, I went there in, um, in 1980, graduated in 1984, and 
you know, I just figured, you know, I always wanted to be a movie maker. I always figured that uh, you, you shouldn't go to school to become, uh, to study film. You should go and study what you want to make movies about. And I was always like fascinated by leadership and character. And I wanted to make movies that uh, that lived in that sort of world. And there's no better a school for leadership than, than, than West Point. What is it about films that attracted you? I'm just shocked that not every single human being in the world isn't like a massive movie lover. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like I was watching movies since I was a little kid, and I said, this is the fucking greatest thing of all time. I can't believe how much I, I love, love, love watching movies. But I'll, I'll tell you something, Emily. When I was a kid, and I'm going to say up until I was like 11 or 12, I didn't know that movies were made. You know, they just sort of showed up in the theater. So I didn't know that there was a camera that filmed this whole thing. And I didn't know that these guys were actors. I guess it was kind of weird. The guy who played Moses is also the guy that lands on the planet of the apes. But, you know, okay, you know. So I just thought that I didn't know what a director was. I didn't know what any of this stuff was. And so, you know who became my heroes when I was young? Movie critics. I became obsessed with movie critics because these cool dudes and gals got to go to the movies for a living. And you know, then eventually I found out the movies were made and they became very interesting to me. And there is that switch though in becoming like seeing it as a reality as opposed to just a work of art. I'll tell you, most people I think, if they were told, okay, you're gonna quit your job and you're given a guarantee that you would have a really good money-making career in the movies, you and probably most people would take it. They go, hell yeah. I mean, what could be more fun? I mean, I went to the movies all the time. The first movie that really got me into movies was Ben-Hur. That's like way before your time. It's before my time too. It's a 1959 film, but I remember it came on TV when I was a kid on CBS, and I couldn't believe how great it was, and that's when I was in. I was in for the ride from there on in. And... Um, for a long time, I watched almost every movie that came out. You know, I would see like 250, 300 movies a year. Wow. And it was like, so I was obsessed. Oh, yeah. Film to me is probably the most complete of the arts because you need to combine photography with costume design with this thing that was invented just for the movies, and that's editing and, and music and acting. It's everything crystallized into one thing, you know. So that was my life's goal. And when I was at West Point, I would always ask myself the same question wherever I walked is, where would I put the camera? And I'm really, really hoping to make a movie at West Point. Um, I'm, I'm you know, putting together a deal right now to make a movie that is set at West Point. Whether or not that institution allows me onto the campus is another thing entirely. I really hope they do. I think it'll be beneficial to all of us. But um, I'm, I, ho I hope to realize my dream of where would I put the camera? Speaking of West Point, what were some reactions from your West Point military friends to your movies? Oh, yeah. No, I'll tell you something about um, graduating from either West Point or from Annapolis or even the Air Force Academy. And that is, I will bet you that the greatest continuation of friendships come out of those schools because you are all going through hell together and you're all surviving together and there's nothing better to forge a friendship than that sort of thing. The last movie that I did, Emily, was a movie called The Outpost. And it's my, by far my proudest movie. It's about the Battle of Kamdesh, about uh, 53 American soldiers who were at the base of a mountain when the Taliban attacked them by the hundreds. Where are you gonna take him? His best chance is in here with us. 
I agree. Agreed? I agree. So... I'll cover you, okay? Thank you. All right? Thank you. Take a fucking breath. All right? Conserve your fucking ammo. Are you ready? Let's go. And um, then the floodgates really opened because so many of my classmates served in Afghanistan, served in Iraq. And you know, so I made this movie really was for them more than it was for, for anybody else and, and for the veterans and for the people who died in that battle. And so, yeah, it's been nothing but positive from my, from my classmates. Well, Rod, you said that you've been a liberal your entire life, but you've made, I think, three references to Charlton Heston already in this interview. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. It's a, uh, it was a real disappointment to find out who that dude really was. <laughs> because when I, when I was a kid, because of Ben-Hur and Planet Apes and, and Ten Commandments, that he, and the Omega Man and Soylent Green, he was really my hero. I loved him. But when I was a film critic, I interviewed him. And that's when I realized that this guy's a hardcore you know, Republican, really religious, and a major NRA guy. And I go, whoa, you know, never meet your heroes is what you're told. And uh, that, that was definitely an example of that, although it's not always held for me. Some of my heroes have proven to be exactly who I thought they were. That's our special guest today, screenwriter and director Rod Lurie. He knows a little something about real-life heroes, having attended West Point and served in the U.S. military before or more accurately, as part of his filmmaking career. Again, Rod was the first creator to build a TV show around an independent president, Gina Davis as Mackenzie Allen, in the 2005 show Commander-in-Chief. I'm not going to waste my time trying to get popular. I'm not going to waste my time campaigning. For the next two years, I'm going to do one thing. One thing only. That's what's right for the American people. This was several years after his film debut, Deterrence, which featured the first Jewish-American president navigating a Mideast nuclear conflict. And shortly after, the feature film The Contender, about efforts to block the nomination of a first female vice president, played by Academy Award nominee Joan Allen. But Hollywood is such a liberal place, and network TV is a different calculus based on holding a loyal audience for months and years. So why not create another Democratic president, as done with the popular shows West Wing, and initially with 24? We asked Rod Lurie if it was the growing partisanship in the U.S. that's made it difficult to present a Democratic or Republican president without alienating a large portion of the American audience. It has made it extraordinarily difficult. And you can just look at at popular culture, and you can see how the polarization has affected ratings. So that's really what you're talking about. You're talking about what kind of audience can we reach? I say part of it, certainly not all of it, but part of it is due to the fact that, you know, there are a lot of the hardcore Trump types who say, I'm just not going to watch these liberal assholes, you know, lecture me on how to live my life or tell me who I should be. And so they tune out. And even in uh, NFL games or in NBA games, there are definitely hardcore conservatives. I, I'm not even sure I want to call them that. I'm not even sure if Trump is a conservative uh, per se. But, but certainly there is a polarized group that will refuse to watch certain bits of entertainment. And so, yeah, it, it absolutely it should affect you if you want to reach a wide audience. Now, there are plenty of screenwriters, guys, who and, and filmmakers who are very happy 
to speak just to the converted, you know, that they're not particularly interested. Michael Moore doesn't care, you know, what the Republicans have to say about his movies. And so it's not affected him. But for, you know, if you're at uh, at CBS or NBC or ABC or places that by definition require a wide swath of the country to be watching, you can be damn sure that they're going to be very, very, very careful. Let's move on to Commander-in-Chief for a little bit. Sure. We've watched um, and enjoyed several episodes of that. You know, it certainly intrigued us in having a president be an independent. And right. we mm-hmm. read a comment of yours at the time that the project Uh-oh. was not nonpartisan, it's anti-partisan. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about what you meant at that time, and are you still anti-partisan today? I'm not anti-partisan at all, and you know, uh, given what partisanship means today. Back then, even back then, it, you know, it was okay to be anti-partisan, meaning a rejection of the notion that it's my way or the highway. It's my country, love it or leave it, you know, that the other side couldn't possibly have a point and we're going to rail against it just because it's the other side. When one side is fueled by the Proud Boys and by QAnon and by white supremacy, and I do feel that they are the other side, and by that I don't mean all Republicans, of course, but I do mean the vast majority of them, which are Trumpers right now, I don't believe that they deserve anti-partisanship. But also, to be perfectly honest with you guys, when we're doing Commander-in-Chief, we went into survival mode on how the show would do. What you don't want is for half the country to tune out because they don't want to be lectured to. And so I very specifically made um, Mackenzie Allen, who was the president in the film, an independent. It didn't really work out the way I wanted it to work out, though, because you know, from the pilot on, you know, people made assumptions about me and made assumptions about our cast that we were hyper-liberal, which is probably true. And so they read into everything that we did. It seems ironic that the media's pushback toward your show is kind of exactly what Commander-in-Chief is trying to show. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Look, here's the thing. Like, I made a casting choice that was at the same time brilliant and uh, and a bad idea at the same time, I would say. And that was that I cast Donald Sutherland, right, as the antagonist. I was hoping we could put aside some of our differences, become friends. <laughs> this is Washington, D.C., Madam President. There are no friends here. There are only enemies and allies. And the thing is... He plays a good antagonist, though. Yeah. Well, okay, but that's the point, though, right? Is that, yeah, <laughs> that's the point. He is so good at it that the fact that he's a Republican meant that he must be the bad guy, and therefore Republicans are the bad guys. And, you know, now, he was fucking brilliant in the show, and he got nominated for the Golden Globe. I think he got nominated for the Emmy. He played Nathan Templeton. He was fantastic. He was delicious. But he, he was a little bit like, you know, Scar in Lion King, you know? He's just this guy that you really, that you really love to hate so much. But in casting him, you know, and not casting somebody who is a little bit more neutral, you know, I basically I was saying all Republicans are bad guys. But, you know, 
so in, in the show, if you'll recall, and by the way, it was a number one new show. It was a huge hit for several weeks until I got fired, and then it went downhill. We saw a couple of strong references about being an independent leader in episode two, when Mac is choosing her vice president, when she sits down with the congressional party leaders and she says to them, well, I don't have to worry you know, about party politics. I don't mean to take advantage of the death of a president, but this is an opportunity for the party. Well, one of the benefits of being independent is I don't have to worry about such things. But in later episodes, that concept didn't seem as strong. So were you essentially the main advocate for maintaining that independent theme in those? Well, early yes, I, I, yes, I absolutely was, but I didn't have to twist any arms, right? It, 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 that simply made sense from a commercial point of view. I never intended it for, to be anything other than, than an independent. So that was, that, it, it wasn't so much that she was a woman, that was difficult uh, to explain how she became president. It's the fact that she was independent that was difficult to explain. You know, although I will say that as folks as we were on the uh, thinking of an independent, we were also focused on what is it that would change if a woman was president? Would it be exactly the same? Are there female sensibilities that we can take into account that would make them a better president than maybe a male president. You know, there's a joke that is said in the beginning of the, um, in the pilot episode, which is that if Moses were a woman, the Jews would not be wandering for 40 years because somebody would stop to ask for directions, right? And, and if you look at the episode where she's um, in a conflict with the, the Russian prime minister, she makes the decision to speak to him completely by, she and he by themselves, so that understanding that nobody has to show off in front of other people how powerful they are. And it became a very important element of, uh, of the show. Well, I was thinking more of the independent nature and the show's designated survivor and Madam Secretary. Right. So did you take right. that as kind of flattery that they chose? Oh, of course, of course. You know, but, you know, look, the truth is that although the show got canceled eventually, it began off really, really strong and we were doing something right. And I think that as those shows analyzed what happened to Commander-in-Chief, you know, they took what they took to be the hallmarks of its success, which is the fact that it was female-centric and the fact that we were diverse and the fact that we were dealing with an independent. And something else that's really important to understand is that independent doesn't necessarily mean that you're middle of the road on everything. That's not what it means, and not in my mind. In my mind, you can be an independent in the sense that, you know, you don't believe in tariffs, at all, you know, you go full on GOP there, but at the same time, you're very much pro-choice, you know, like you don't, so you can be very convicted on certain issues, but they just don't necessarily fall in line with your party completely. And like I said, we were dealing with issues that like, in, I think it was the third episode where we're going to bomb a country that is uh, you know, a major manufacturer of cocaine. What does it mean when you say that 
you're going to have a, um, you know, a response to a military action or to a murder that is proportional. What does that mean? Is proportionality uh, in and of itself uh, virtuous? West Wing dealt with this also, you know, and can you tell me, can you tell me, Emily or Robert, you know, would a Democrat or Republican be more or less proportional in how they respond? And I think we don't know. And so that is the approach that we took and maybe should have taken even more zealously. If I can't bring Sanchez in, I will make him irrelevant. I will take away what makes him powerful, what makes the military support him. Talk to me about eradication, massive coca crop eradication. It was great having an Indy in the White House while it lasted, but President Allen's tenure was only 18 episodes long, ending in cancellation, though not impeachment. But Rod Laurie's solution to divided American viewership was taken on a decade later by two more network shows, Madam Secretary in 2014 for five seasons, and then Designated Survivor for three seasons in 2016, created by our special guest next episode, David Guggenheim. And it stars Kiefer Sutherland as a low-level cabinet member who becomes president after a massive attack on the nation's capital. Being obstructionist, playing party politics, both parties. Illegitimate! Illegitimate is not an argument, sir. If name-calling and petty grievances are what serve for debate in this great chamber, then Congress truly is in a sorry, sorry state. All you want to do is tear things down. It is shameful. The system is broken, and you people broke it. All of these creators initially made serious attempts to look at issues from different perspectives while maintaining audience share. But that's such a heavy lift in our tribalized politics and society. And if anything, the forces of polarization are way stronger since Rod Lurie aired Commander-in-Chief in 2005. So we asked him if it's possible to make a political show or film these days without being torn apart by at least one of our polar tribes. I don't think so. Like I said, I, I think right now we definitely have entrenched onto our sides. It is not possible. And so I think that if you're going to make a movie that deals with politics, you're going down the middle of the road is going to appeal to absolutely nobody. So you may as well make a film that's not that expensive um, and, and appeal to um, you know, a, good, a good swath of it. But there's something else that's happened with political films, which is the political farce is out. You can't do it anymore, not with Trump having been in office. What are you going to do that is more extreme than this clown? You couldn't make a character more goofy and caricaturish than him. That show Veep is now a docudrama. You know, it's insane. I was going to do a movie a few years ago called State of the Union. And it, it, it was, in fact, about an independent who runs for the presidency. He's a billionaire who runs for the presidency. And we had to scrap it. You know, we had to scrap it after the McCain-Obama crazy election because we thought that was out of its mind with Sarah Palin, you know, and McCain being told in an audience that Obama is a Muslim and maybe wasn't born in this country. We thought that was crazy. But now it's gone so bananas that you can't make a farce. So the only movie that you can really do right now, in my opinion, about political races are aspirational movies. 
Well, let me ask you one quick question about deterrence, which I, yeah, I sure. believe you made in around 1999. Mm-hmm. And right. this first Jewish president. Yeah. But at the very beginning, when he's part of some primary results on the TV, when the Connecticut yep. results come up, it looks like Trump has won Connecticut. Yeah, that's right. Was that because right. you were concerned about Trump running for office way back then? Yeah, I was. I was concerned about that. I was concerned about everything that's in the film, including our re-engagement in Iraq, which came true and which I thought was inevitable. But I thought for sure that Trump would enter our political system. And unfortunately, uh, he did. So, uh, you know, and I also predicted he would be a Republican because that's what this guy is running on. So... You know, and even though he he claimed to be a Democrat back then, I just felt that Trump was going to be an opportunist and would go with whatever, not what he really believed in necessarily, but whatever would be most, most expedient to him. You know, Donald Trump looked at the landscape and said, I know what I can do. I can absolutely, you know, dig into this nativism, this populism, this... Um, anxiety among white Christians. I can exploit that. There's nothing on the Democrat side he could exploit. And he did, and, uh, and this is where he ended up, obviously. So The Outpost, which was one of your most recent projects, has won a bunch of awards, including the top 10 independent films uh, named by the National Board of Review, among other things. And one scene that hit me was in the first like 10 minutes or so when the Taliban first attacks them and they immediately start fighting within each other. You can't argue and fight at the same time. Don't do it again. I thought that that was a really encapsulating type of quote. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, that was improvised by the guy who says it in the movie. And the guy who says it in the movie is a guy named Hank Hughes. And Hank was actually a lieutenant at that very outpost. And, you know, and you, you would have infighting within the units like you would have in any sort of family. But this isn't political arguing. It's arguing about the best way to fight the enemy. And the concept there is that the, um, the person that's in charge, the highest ranking person will make the decisions and the people below will have to follow those decisions. And it does nobody any good to argue or to, or to fight back. And leadership, like I told you before, leadership has always been a very important topic to me to try to explore. So is it having a common enemy that gets people to cooperate and agree with each other? Usually, usually, if we have a common enemy, it unites us. You know, like the country was very united after 9-11, but COVID-19 does not, did not unite us. The other thing that didn't unite us is, you know, uh, you know, Russia interfering in our, in our election. It just, uh, you know, Trump somehow, <laughs> this, this dude somehow managed to use being attacked by Russia in some sort of way as a way to further divide the country. So it's very, very odd. But when the bullets start flying, we better be all shooting back in that direction where the bullets are coming from and not at one another. And that's one of the lessons of the, uh, I think, of the outposts that may relate to, uh, to life right now. It speaks to the power of good versus bad leadership. Right. And, you know, and in the outpost, which everyone can see on Netflix right now, I'm really proud of it. You know, you see various leaders coming in and out of that unit. 
and you see what different leadership styles do and how one leader can unite a unit and another leader can tear a unit apart. And that was one of the great lessons at West Point is, you know, it's a school of leadership. And you learn, hopefully, how to unite. It's served me very well as a director, in fact, you know, because you're sort of a, a unit commander of the, of the crew. So one other question, Trump, you know, filled his White House, his cabinet with a lot of people from the military. It seemed a little bit surprising initially. I think he was mm-hmm. counting on their loyalty. They all eventually had enough and turned on. That's right. <laughs> but you must have yep. watched that. Uh, I could have told you that, Robert. Yeah. And not only could I have told you that, I did tell other people that. I said, none of these guys are going to stick by him. They have too much character. In fact, one of them is my classmate, H.R. McMaster. And there was no fucking way that H.R. was going to stick it out with this asshole. He, Trump is a guy who's, who stood by Vladimir Putin on that podium and attacked our own uh, intelligence agencies. Trump is a guy who turned on the Kurds. Trump is a guy who dodged the draft. Trump's a guy who called um, the military people suckers and losers. There's no way that these guys are sticking by him. We're hearing this very awkward word about our politicians these days, performative. Our politicians are performative. They're playing to their audience. They're playing to their base. Certainly Trump, as you mentioned, probably all the time, but even in Congress, a lot of the time, they're in Congress, on the floor, ignoring everyone around them and playing to their base. So as a director, you must have an opinion, like which of these people are really convincing? None of them are fucking convincing. Come on, Robert, are you kidding me? They're all full of shit, but people fall for it. It's really amazing. The only time that they're convincing is when they go against their against their party. When Lindsey Graham got up on, you know, and said, I'm done, I'm done with this, I'm over, it's over, you know, he lost, it's over. That was convincing because it's true. And then he caught a little bit of shit for it and then he's back to Trump is the greatest thing ever and, you know, and... So when the stage is there, you know, that was the right word, Robert. It's it's extremely performative. And sometimes the performance is just m- made for one audience member, and that's Donald Trump, I think. We do ask everyone on the show to show a little bit of purple and talk about someone in the other party. And you've said you're a Democrat that you have respect for. Well, I'll tell you, I like this guy, Adam Kinzinger. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. But I'm not sure, to be honest with you, that's also not a little bit performative. And I'll explain. Then I'll get to my my hero uh, on the other side in a second. I think that there are certain Republicans who are banking on the fact that in 2024, the anti-Trump people will be the ones that will be the most respected in the same way that... Um, in 2008, if you were a Democrat who voted against the Iraq war, that was going to be a major boon for you. And so Obama benefited from that, whereas almost nobody else did. But I, to me, it's uh, most Democrats who have been on your show, I'm sure they're saying Mitt Romney. And I, and I think if, he, if he's knocked out of office, he'll say, oh, what the fuck, you know, I've had a good run. But he came out against Trump during the election in 2016. I mean, he showed, he really went after him and he voted for to impeach him. And I, you know, I respect him. I respect Murkowski for the same reason. You know, they're people that, they're decent human beings. It wouldn't have been so bad if Romney was our president. 
Now, you know, I wouldn't like his Supreme Court choices, and I wouldn't like some of his policies, but, you know, he's a, he's a leader. He's a good man. So that's, that's my vote. That was our very special guest today, Rod Lurie. And Emily, I have to say, that was maybe my personal favorite show of Purple from any guest in either season so far, because Rod, by his own admission, is a passionate, lifelong liberal. But his respect for Romney and Murkowski really seemed heartfelt. And it comes from somebody who studied leadership and the American presidency in his own way for many decades. West Point grad, military veteran, and the creative force behind not one but three different shows or films featuring an American presidency, Deterrence, The Contender, and Commander-in-Chief. We hope you'll go back and binge-watch some of these shows, as well as Rod Lurie's latest film, The Outpost. Next up on The Purple Principle, we'll be continuing our exploration of how Hollywood chooses its presence with David Guggenheim. He's creator of the 2016 series Designated Survivor, and his fictional premise of an attack on Washington, D.C. became all too real on January 6, 2021, during the Capitol insurrection. I do know when, you know, the insurrection happened at the Capitol that, you know, all so many people were emailing me going, oh, my God, this is like straight out of, you know, the show. We hope you'll join us for that episode Recommend the podcast to a friend or two, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love to read those on the air. Please also check out our newsletter, The Purple Principle in Print. Each issue takes a deep dive into the major forces pulling Americans apart and profiles important groups and individuals trying to reverse that trend. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Crusetti for The Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Emily Holloway, Digital Strategy and Outreach, Dom Scarlett, Research Associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.